Um, if you're visiting with us, my name is Adrian. I'm the lead pastor here at Anchor Church, and I'm one of a team of people that's leading this church together. Um, and uh, again, want to just say that it's a privilege to have you with us. Um, I'm going to share a message with you today called The King on a Cross. And uh, it comes out of the Gospel of John. Uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter number 19 today. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up at John chapter number 19 and verse 1. And uh, my wife and I, we love going to movies. My wife is kind of a movie addict. Uh, she has watched almost every single movie in the world. If we're ever on a flight anywhere, she doesn't sleep. Who needs sleep when you can watch free movies? I mean, I, I remember coming home one day and knocking on the front door and, and, uh, and, and, and there was no answer. And I was worried because I knew, I knew my wife was home. And I'm knocking on the front door. I'm trying to get in. And so I open the door. The security gate is still locked. And I look through, and I can see her watching a movie. And I, can, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking, we had a small house, so I know she can hear me as well, but she's just like fixated. She just goes in the zone when it comes to movies. I don't know if any of you are like that, but my wife is definitely like that. So it's always been a big thing for us to be able to go out and watch a movie together. Um, it's something that we love doing. And when you have kids uh, going to the movies, it's just not something. It's like those rare moments of joy that you get to experience as parents of small kids is that you just don't get to go uh, to the movies as much as you used to. Um, and so uh, every now and again, if we manage to organize it, my wife and I will see if we can drop the kids off at the grandparents and uh, then go and watch a movie. And it's just so amazing to be able to sit still for two hours. And nobody needs bunny milk. No one needs help on the toilet. Like everybody's just taking care of themselves. Like we don't have to get up. We don't have to move around. We don't have to press pause. And, uh, and, and help a child out, and uh, everything just kind of happens. And so uh, my wife and I love watching movies together, but more than just watching the movies together, we actually really enjoy watching trailers. I don't know uh, how many of you enjoy watching trailers. If, you go off, if, you, if you're uh, signed up to box office on, on DSTV, you can actually, you know, a trailer is about three minutes, and there's about 10 of them. You can take like 30 minutes just watching trailers. It's like a show all by itself. It's almost like watching a movie, you know, uh, the best parts of all the movies that are available. So um, we love watching the trailers and, and just getting excited about what's coming up and building that anticipation. And so we'll always make sure that we're in the cinema, um, you know, at least 15 minutes before the movie starts so that we can see what's coming up next. And it creates this amazing anticipation. Uh, and, 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 and we get excited about this movie that's going to release. And uh, if you're visiting with us here today and it's the, your first week joining us in this Gospel of John series, um, you've picked an incredibly good day because it's like you pick the day or when the premiere of the movie releases. Uh, because up until now, for the last 20 weeks or so, seven months that we've been doing this study in the Gospel of John, um, we have, we've been going through trailers where John is essentially showing us who Jesus is. John is so passionate about Jesus. He's one of the disciples that walked with Jesus and, and was one of the closest disciples. Um, he knew the love that God had for him and and he had a, a genuinely special relationship with Jesus. And so he writes a book. A lot of people are now saying things about Jesus. But he writes his gospel to kind of put all of the, the hearsay uh, to, to, to rest. And to say, this is actually who Jesus was. I'm going to tell you. Because I'm the guy who was there. I walked with him. I saw his life. I heard his words. I, I was close to him. I, I rested my head on his chest when we sat at the Last Supper. And I, and I heard his heart beat. John knows Jesus better than anybody else knows Jesus. And, 
And so he begins to unpack Jesus for us and show us who Jesus is. And he starts off by telling us that Jesus is actually God. Like just in case there was any doubt about that, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. And nothing that was created in this world was created without him. He is God. Jesus is God who then became flesh. That's how John starts his book because he is showing us this, the trailer of what it is that God came to do. And, and, and so as we went through the different chapters of the book of John, what we've seen is chapter after chapter, event after event, John, is, it's like showing us a trailer. Hey, it was, the, it was the time of the Passover. Just go and look at how many times it says, hey, it was the time of the Passover. He starts off in John 1 where John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, the Passover Lamb. And so every single time, when, just before John mentions what happened, so often he goes, it was the time of the Passover or the time of the Passover was at hand. He kept letting us know, this is the trailer. The movie's coming out. The, the premiere is going to be releasing soon. The, the, the main event is going to be happening. And so we've been building in this anticipation for how Jesus, the Lamb of God, sent into the world, is going to save us and redeem us from sin and from the, the death that we owed to the law. And so it's like this summer, Jesus is redeeming the world, you know, salvation coming to a city near you. We've just been waiting for this movie to release. And here in John chapter number 19, where we are at today, the movie releases. This is the premiere. This is the main event. This is where the red carpet gets rolled out. Because this is the time when there is a fulfillment of a plan and a promise that God had set in motion 4,000 years earlier. You know, sometimes it's frustrating when you hear about a good movie and it's only releasing next year. It's like, why do I need to know about it now? You know, I don't even know what's going to be happening in my life a year from now, but I've already booked the date of the movie release. And so, you know, but this is, it takes it all the way back 4,000 years ago from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned against God and sin entered into, the, into humanity and in the heart of mankind. At that moment, God already makes a promise. He already promises how the seed of the woman will crush the head of the enemy. How he will deliver his people. And, 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 and through all of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is just, it just reveals Jesus to us. Jesus is, is, is in every chapter. He's in every book. Every story whispers his name. All of the Bible is pointing us towards what God would do through his son, Jesus. And the, 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 the Jewish people had been waiting upon this Messiah. The prophecies had gone out. Everybody had written about Jesus. And they were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally he arrives. This is the most significant moment in human history. All of history was set up for this moment here. This moment in which God would die on a cross for the people that he loved. It's the greatest story ever told. You know, we have so many fairy tales that we, that we read about as kids. And, and I've got small kids, so there's different stories that we'll read them. But, you know, we always know at the end of the day, you know, there's a happily ever after. We know that all of those are just, are just fairy tales. They're just stories. But, you know, in the gospel, all of those stories are true. If we look at how it applies to our lives, the, 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 the eternal 
joy that we have in Jesus, the salvation, the, the rescue, the love, the romance, it's all there. In Jesus, every fairy tale is genuinely true for us. And so we're going to go to John chapter number 19 and verse 1. And we're going to read these five verses. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. A lot of the other Gospels give more detail around the crucifixion. Uh, John, he writes very kind of matter of fact to, he just wants us to know what Jesus did for us. It's almost like there was some pain that John felt. He was there, he witnessed it, and he wanted to recount it, but he didn't want to go into every single specific detail like a lot of the other Gospels do. John's Gospel is very different in how he speaks about Jesus. It's even when we looked at last week when Jesus got arrested, um, we see how, how Judas came with this mob to arrest Jesus. And, uh, and a couple of times, uh, John, it's like he just can't help himself. It's like he wears his heart on his sleeve. He just says what he's feeling. And just a couple of times in his gospel, he's like, and the betrayer was with them. And he betrayed Jesus. And he was standing there, that betrayer. And, and it was Judas. Does everybody, Judas was the betrayer. And he's just like, it's like he's just mad. It's like John's just like, I can't believe you did this. I, why would you do this, Judas? You know? And he's so disappointed that he just constantly mentions the fact that Judas was there among them. And, uh, and so even here, you know, when he, when he writes, he's also the only uh, writer of, the of a gospel that, that calls himself the apostle whom Jesus loves or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, he's the only one who refers to himself in the third person in that way. And he just wears his heart on his sleeve. And so um, he's very kind of matter of fact. It's very, um, uh, you know, just, just sober minded how he recounts the story of Jesus. He says that, they took a crown of thorns, twisted it together, and put it on his head. And they arrayed him in a purple robe. Um, one of the other Gospels tells us that they put a, a, a reed in his hand um, as a scepter, mocking him um, and, and, and his deity. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Behold the man. We're going to go ahead and pray today. We're going to get into this chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. And I believe that God is just going to encourage your heart today as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Uh, so let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, we thank you today that we haven't come here with human words or human wisdom. We're not here to convince um, or, or to speak in, in, in just vain philosophy, Lord God. We thank you, Father, that we come today together under the voice of the Holy Spirit. And, Father, that all of us are, are sitting at your feet today, hearing your voice uh, uh, and, and, and fixing our eyes, fixing our faith on Jesus, the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And right now, even as we begin, Father, we want to thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for that the... That what you did on the cross, you didn't just do, but you did it for us. That we were on your mind when you hung on the cross. That, that you did it with us in mind. And, and because of your great love, for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross. And we thank you, Jesus, that that applies not just to Christians, not just to believers, but to all people. That you died and became the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And so we thank you, God, that your grace is available to all of us today if we would put our faith in Jesus. And we give you all the glory for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So 
if somebody came up to you at work tomorrow um, or wherever you were moving around uh, on, on a Monday morning and said to you, tell me, what makes Christianity different from every other religion? Just that simple question. They're like, hey, I've got two seconds. Can you just quickly tell me what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world? There's so many philosophies, there are so many ideas, there's so many books that have been written, there's so many ancient wisdom and, and modern wisdom and, 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 and things that people come up with to help us get through this life and, and ideologies and philosophies and, and self-help programs. With all of that that abounds, how do we know that Christianity is true and how do we know that it's different? I heard a story about uh, C.S. Lewis who walked into a, a, a conference in, in Britain. It was a British conference on, on comparative religious studies. And he walked in there and apparently there was a conversation going on and a discussion going on about why, what makes Christianity different. And, uh, and they said, well, maybe it's because of the fact that miracles are present within Christianity. And they said, well, there's, there's other religions that claim to have miracles. They said that perhaps it's because uh, Jesus was raised from the dead. And they said, well, there's other religions that kind of claim that they had a God or somebody that was raised from the dead. They, they said, maybe it's the incarnation, the fact that Jesus became flesh, that God became flesh. And they said, well, there are also other religions that have this, this idea of, of God or gods that become present with humanity. So they were kind of trying to figure out what it is. And it's, uh, as the story goes, uh, C.S. Lewis walked in at that time. and They're kind of like, what are you guys talking about? And they said, what is it that makes Christianity different? And he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. That's what it is. It's, it's grace. Every single other religion, every single other philosophy, every single other um, idea in this world has certain steps, a system that has to be adhered to and steps that need to be taken and, and, and things that need to be done in order to be made righteous. But Christianity is the declaration that we could do nothing to save ourselves and instead God became man so that he could die on our behalf. And so when we receive Jesus, we receive him only by grace. We live our lives only according to the grace of God. It is the defining factor, the identifying factor of Christianity. What makes Christianity different from every other religion? It's grace. We saw how in John 1, it tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth, and he became to us grace upon grace. It's who he is. It's who God is. God is grace. And that's the only message that we have to the world. Regardless of what you may have thought coming in here, our message to this world is not, hey, come and let us help you try to be a better person, better than you are now at the moment, because you've already kind of tried that, haven't you? I mean, all of us wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to try and be a little bit better. I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better, a better pastor. I want to be better at my job. I want to be a better neighbor. I want to be just a better person in general. We all have that desire because we know how much we lack in, in all of those areas. And so the desire to be made better isn't what we lack. It's the ability to be made better. And so we didn't come in here to say, hey, can we just kind of, encourage you to kick harder we know you're drowning can you just kick harder can you just swim try a little bit more like we, we're not here just cheering you from the outside we, what we're saying is is that we can let go 
We can stop kicking. We can stop fighting. And we can allow instead, by the Holy Spirit, the glory of God to produce change in us. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we behold Him with unveiled face, the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, we are transformed from glory to glory as by the Spirit of God. If your life has changed, it's not because you're good. It's because of God's grace. If I'm up here today holding a microphone, if God has done stuff in my it's not because I'm good. It's not because I'm perfect. It's not because I live this great life. It's because of the grace of God. And so the Bible says there's nothing for us to boast in. The defining factor is grace. I saw an interview um, on, I think it was CNN this week, where somebody, where somebody, I think Donald Trump was actually speaking out against this one uh, pastor and and called him a bunch of names, and then on CNN, they interviewed the pastor, and they said to him, so what, what, do you, what would you like to say to, uh, to Mr. Trump and, 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 you know, about the things that he said about you? And, he, and his answer, and I'm paraphrasing here, but his answer was basically, yeah, everything he said is true. I, you know, I, I am, I believe that I am a sinner, and, and, and I'm messed up in many ways, and I'm imperfect, and, and, uh, and that's actually why I'm a Christian, because I need the grace of God in my life. He said, yeah, I just totally... High five you, Mr. Trump, whatever you, name you have to call me. The truth is I'm far worse than what you even know in my own self. And so the grace of God, what it does is it breaks into our lives and it switches us on to the things of God. It causes us to, to be able by His strength, not our own, to live a different life. And our lives should seem weird to the world. Why would Christians just be wanting to go around doing good things? Have you ever had somebody come to you and like offer to do something good for you and you're like, where's the catch, buddy? Like, where is the catch in all of this? You know that there is a catch. If you get an email and somebody wants to give you something for free or, or there's something happening or, or somebody comes up to you and they, you know, I don't know if you've had this, but people come up to you in the mall and go, hey, have this. And then you're like, as you're about to take it, you can see they're about to launch into all the strings that are attached to the thing that you almost took for free. And then you're like, no, it's fine. I won't take it. And so it's even hard for people to accept and receive grace because they're like, where's the strings attached to all of this? Like, well, what, what, are you, what are you suckering me into here? There's a bait and switch thing that happens so often. But the gospel is the only genuinely free thing in the world. God gives us His grace free of charge. And what it does is that it, it causes us to fall in love with God. It causes us to experience the love that God has for us. Like, I'll, I'll serve people, I'll submit, I, I'm willing, I, in fact, it's something that I love to be able to do. But I struggle to submit and I struggle to serve faithfully if I don't genuinely believe that the person that I'm submitting to or that I'm being faithful to cares about me. And so sometimes we're, we're trying to put the commitment before understanding the love of the Father. Your commitment is not going to produce the love of the Father in your life. The love of the Father is going to produce God's, your commitment to God. Your faithfulness is not going to produce God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is going to produce your faithfulness. He's the one who made the first move. He's the God who became flesh. 
And so he sent his son to die for us on a cross so that we can be unconditionally forgiven and to experience his unmerited favor in our lives. This is what the gospel is. The gospel means good news. Acts 20 verse 24, Paul writes, I do not, or, um, yeah, it, it's speaking about Paul. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In Galatians, he tells us there is only one gospel. Everything else is a perversion of the gospel. There is only one message. There's only one good news, and it is the grace of God and how it changes us. Some people are worried about grace. They say, well, if you just tell people that there's grace, they'll just go and sin. But, the, but Paul wrote to Titus, and he said, uh, when he, in his letter to Titus, he said this. He says, the grace of God leading to salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny all ungodliness. What was going to teach your heart to be faithful, to be loyal, to be holy? It's not our own strength. It's not our own righteousness. It's how God breaks through into our hearts and lives. And that's the message that we carry. This church is not about rules and rituals. I've got to tell you about this because it's just, it's so something that would happen to me. Um, I can be feisty at times, all right? I'm just going to put it out there. I can be feisty. My team knows it. People, my wife knows it. People that work around me, I can be feisty. And, and sometimes I like to just get into an argument and then I walk away and I think that was unnecessary, but it was fun while it lasted. Um, and so I, I went to Home Affairs this week. I was dropping off a marriage register. I had been there three times already. Um, and I keep driving out to Home Affairs and getting there and then walking in. And then they have been offline for about two weeks. And all I want to do is hand in a marriage register. And it requires no computers. You do not need a computer to hand the marriage register in. All that you need is to take it and then to sign in a book. And I'm like, let's just do the paperwork. Then I don't have to drive back here all of the time. It's costing me petrol money. It's a lot of time. I, it's, I don't want to do this again. And so the guy sitting behind the counter, he's, he says, no, no, what we need to do is we need to check on the system to make sure that the people aren't married. I'm like, I know they are single. They are, I've, I've counseled them. They've never been married. And I have, you know, you can SMS a number and it'll actually tell you whether they're married or not. I'm like, let's do it right now on the phone. We can do it together. And then I don't need to come back here again. You can just take this. And, you know, so I'm just like, I know that if he really wanted to, he could help me out here um, and just do me a favor. But the guy, he just goes, it's, it's the rule. That's the rule. And so I'm like, but the, and I said this and, I, and, and you know, it's not great. But I said, the rule is stupid. It's stupid. And I clarified, I'm not, not you, you're not stupid. The rule is stupid because you can help me right now. And by this time, there's like a group of people that have gathered waiting to speak to him. And so I'm like, I just, and he goes, that's your opinion. Now I'm out the door. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not my opinion. It actually is stupid. Let me explain to you why it is. And so he goes, well, that's the rule. And, I, and he goes, as a pastor, you should know about that. And I was out the door again. I was like, no, 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 no. And I said to him, I just said this, I said to him, I'm not about rules, buddy, so you better check your theology on that one. And then I left because I didn't have time for that discussion. But, but that's the thing. People think you're a pastor, you're about rules. You're about, you're about this has to be right and that has to be wrong. And it's all about telling people how they must live their lives and all that kind of stuff. And I believe that the Spirit of God leads us because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So I had to challenge him on his theology because he thinks, yeah, you're a pastor. You must be all about rules. No, I'm all about grace. 
I'm all about what God does in our lives. And then, yes, through His grace, we find ourselves fulfilling the law. But we do it with our eyes fixed on Jesus, not our eyes fixed on ourselves. So it's not about rules and rituals. It's a revelation of God's grace that we're about. It's about revealing the love that God has for us. And it's all because of this person, this Jesus, this King, the King of creation, the King of heaven, who got onto a cross for us. That's what opened the door to the grace of God in our lives. Talking about movies, um, some of the hardest movies for me to watch. I enjoy movies that, that, are, that just have a deeper message and, and, and that, you know, you kind of, I some, for a period, and I think this was my English teacher's kind of influence, I had like movies and then films. I don't think there's really a difference, but there's like movies, just like, yeah, it's a comedy, and then there's like a film. You know, that's like... I'm not going to mention it because you might disagree. But, but films are just those like deeper movies that are just so artistically valuable and just have so much to say. And so, um, and so I, was, I, was, I, I enjoy watching these kinds of movies, but they're really difficult for me to watch at the same time. And that's movies about slavery. If you've ever watched movies about people who have been, have been captured, have been taken away from their homes, have been separated from their families and have been put into slavery, I, I just I cannot even imagine what it must be like to have your freedom. And we know, and we've got um, Kirsten. Where's Kirsten? Kirsten's here today. She still works with, uh, very actively uh, in combating human trafficking. And it's something our church is, is very, very passionate about as well. Because we can't even imagine that the gospel is freedom. And we can't imagine somebody being taken forcibly from their homes and being forced into a life of slavery. Where your freedoms, even of movement, even of expression, has been taken away from you where you get stripped of all of your dignity and, 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 and you're forced into doing the bidding of whoever your master is without love or without care or without mercy or without, without joy. And when Jesus spoke about us and when Paul writes about our condition as human, being, human beings, what he says is that we were slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. Like sin took us. And it stripped us of our dignity and it became our master. Where even if we wanted to run away from sin, slaves want to run away. They don't want to be slaves. And even if we were to run away, it's like our sin master would just chase us down, beat us up and bring us straight back. If you've ever made a promise to God that you won't commit that sin ever again. like Yeah, yeah God, I'm never going to make that. I'm never going to commit that sin again. And it's like some, some way it just... It hunts you down. It, it, it brings you back into submission. And, and Jesus writes about how sin becomes a master to us and puts us in slavery. Jesus is like the ultimate Liam Neeson who's going to find us. He's going to beat whoever took us up. And he is going to bring us back home. And that's what this rescue mission out of heaven was. You see, God isn't pulling people out of sin because he, he just wants everything to be nice and holy and, and pretty and, and just because that's the way he likes it. He understands that people are being beaten up. People are losing their lives as a result of sin. And he wants to rescue us from the things that hurt us and hurt those around us. He wants to bring us into a place where we can live a life of rest and a life of, a life of peace. He leads us beside peaceful streams. He causes us to lie down in green pastures. 
to know His goodness. And so it's so interesting that the Bible says that we once were slaves of sin, and now we're slaves of righteousness. And I used to read that and go, okay, but I'm still a slave. It still isn't, doesn't sound great to me, the fact that I'm a slave of righteousness. But just, just think about that for a moment. If you're a slave of righteousness, it means that God has taken you and righteousness is your overruling authority. So that even if I was to try and run away from my own righteousness, even if I decided I'm going to rebel against God and I don't want to know anything about God, and I've had moments like that in my life, and I'm like, I want to go do the opposite of what I'm supposed to do. God's righteousness, His love, His sacrifice, what Jesus did for me on the cross, will find me and bring me home again and again and again and again. And I can't escape my righteousness. I used to be a slave of sin. Now I'm a a slave of righteousness. I have been made righteous through the sacrifice of Jesus. In the Old Testament, Israel, the people of Israel became slaves of Egypt. And they served in Egypt under harsh conditions. They were mistreated. They were beaten up. They, uh, I mean, you saw those pyramids. I'm not saying they built them. I'm just saying there was a lot of hard work that happened in Egypt. And, and, uh, and the people, they cry out to God. They cry out for freedom. I'm telling you, there's a cry in our hearts. And people that don't know Jesus, where they're like, we need freedom. There's a cry for freedom in our hearts. And, and, and so God shows up to Moses and And he says this to Moses, he says, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cries, and I have come down to deliver them. That's essentially what God does for us. He has seen our affliction. He has heard our cries. And so in this moment, John 19, Jesus is about to be the Passover lamb. It comes out of that time when Israel were in slavery in Egypt. And God was delivering them, and he told them to take a lamb, which was a symbol of sacrifice. And to make sure that the lamb had no blemish, no spots, a perfect spotless lamb. And then to sacrifice that lamb and eat every part of it together as a family. I can imagine that lambs were on sale in Egypt at that time. I mean, you got like um, one and a half million to two million people just going, hey, can we have a lamb? Just Everybody's having lamb tonight in Egypt. And so there's this picture of a lamb that comes and, and what happened is they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the, on, the, on the doorposts of the house and the angel of death passed over and it was what released them from slavery. That's what we see in, in the Old Testament, how God delivers his people from slavery, and it's ultimately what he came to do through Jesus, the Lamb of God. Once and for all, deliver us from slavery. And so here he is, the King, the Messiah, the Savior, come to be subject to death on a cross. And so after Jesus is arrested and tried and and flogged, they make a crown of thorns. They twist it together and they press it in his head. And they give him this, this rod, uh, the, this reed as a scepter. And they, they put this purple rod on him and he's, there's blood pouring from his face. And they, they put him up in front of the crowd and they say, behold the man. And to me, there's something so powerful in this. 
We see it in Revelation 5 when John hears that the lamb, that, that, that the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus was a king in the lineage of Judah, the tribe of Israel. And John hears the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And he turns around to see this lion and he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. It's grace. It's the defining factor. It looks so different to the way we as people and even other philosophies and ideas, how they define strength. Talk about movies. Every movie we watch shows how somebody is wronged and then so many of those movies is like how they're going to get revenge or how they're going to get retribution. And we feel good about it. Like if somebody goes in there and they were wronged in the beginning and then at the end everybody's dead except the guy that was wrong. We're like, yes, justice. Because we have a compass for justice. And that's how we define strength in this world. Being able to get your own back. Being able to, to take strides forward. Being able to, to make things happen for yourself. But in the kingdom, under God, strength looks like a lamb that has been slain. Glory, omnipotence, power looks like a king on a cross. Stripped of all of his dignity. Dying for the people that are crucifying him. It's so different. This is such a different movie. It's not like anything we've seen in the world. Behold the man, Pilate says. Zechariah 6.11, one of these prophecies says, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, who was a type of Jesus, the son of that guy, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man. Behold the man whose name is Branch, capital B. For he shall branch out from his place in heaven. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. Behold the man. Pilate brings. Pilate is fulfilling prophecy after prophecy without realizing it. It's incredible how when God has ordained something, he will just make things happen, even if those that are involved don't know they're involved. He will move. And so Pilate's like, behold the man. And some scholar in the back must have been like, hey, that's Zechariah 6 verse 12. You know, like, Whatever that verse was. <laughs> so he's a branch of David, the king of Israel. He looked just like a man in that moment. He was earthly, bloodied. And the Pharisees that are standing there and, and all of the religious people, they do not recognize that he is not just a man. And that's often what religion will do. It will show you Jesus, but you will miss his divinity. You will miss who he truly is and what he has truly come to do for you. So John 19 verse 6, it says, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, behold the man, the Messiah. They've been waiting for 4,000 years. Here he is, behold him. The chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. John 19 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat. At a place called the stone pavement. Jesus gets put in the judgment seat. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. This is the day where the lambs are prepared for the slaughter, for the atonement that would happen once a year on the day 
of the Passover. And at that self-same time, while in the very temple, priests are busy preparing lambs, Jesus is being prepared. Pilate comes out and he says, I find no fault with this man because he's the spotless lamb. Able to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. So it was the day of preparation. And Jesus is being prepared. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Behold, your, behold the man. Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. We have no king but Caesar. That's ultimately what a rejection of Jesus looks like. When you have heard God say that this is what he has promised to do in your life, to set you free from slavery, to send a sacrifice into your life. And when we behold him, we know that he is king. We see him. And instead we go, we have no king but Caesar. Caesar, the Roman Empire, uh, ruled the known world at that time. And Caesar was the king of the world, essentially, the emperor of the world. He was worshipped as a god. And these chief priests, they say, we have no... They're, they're chief priests in Judaism. Of course they have a god. But they make a decision to serve the god of this world rather than to submit to the grace of God through Jesus. And any rejection of Jesus, that's what it looks like. In all honesty, that's what we still struggle with. To submit to the King of Heaven in every area of our lives as opposed to following what we can get out of this world. How much money we can make. How we can get ahead. How we can just express ourselves. How we can just get ahead and how we can just enjoy all things. Just make everything set up to make our lives better. We have no king but Caesar. This cuts to the heart of human rebellion against Jesus. Where we want to just serve the God of this world and serve ourselves. Even when we're doing things for other people, we do it and we just feel so good about ourselves as we do it. <laughs> it's self-serving even sometimes when we serve others. So let's move on. John 19 verse 20. It says, many of the Jews read the inscription. So sorry. So what, what happens is, is that Pilate takes Jesus and he puts a, a, a sign above him on the cross and he writes down on the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that's where we pick it up in verse 20. It says, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests said to the Jews, uh, and the, uh, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Again, just fulfilling a prophecy. He's just speaking truth without even realizing it. Jesus carries his cross up the hill of Golgotha and he's crucified there amongst common thieves beside two different, different thieves and and, and Pilate goes ahead and puts this inscription above Jesus' head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was a fulfillment of 
Jesus as the king from Judah, from the lineage of David, who would come and save his people. In Genesis 49, it says, The scepter, the rulership, the authority, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The word Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. Until the one to whom it belongs comes. The scepter of authority shall not depart until Jesus arrives. He's the king of Judah. He's the lion of Judah. And in this moment, there's this attempt by the religious people to deny his deity, to deny his kingship, who he truly is. And so the picture that I want to I get across to you today is how this God who stepped out of heaven came to earth. And because of the joy that was set before him, in obedience to the Father, he got onto an undignified cross. They tore his clothes off of him and cast lots for his clothes and divided it up amongst themselves. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was, he was spat upon. And all of that was because he was taking the punishment for our sins. There's something incredible about the picture of the price that God has paid for us. That God has paid for you. If you doubt your own value, if you doubt how worthy you are or how, how much you're worth to God, just simply look at the cross. It expresses our worth to God more than anything else because it says this is how much God was willing to pay to buy us back from the debt we owed to the law. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, What care we for all the kingdoms of the world and the glory thereof when once we see the thorn-crowned Lord? There is more glory in one nail of the cross than there is in all the scepters of all kings. More glory in one nail of the cross. That's the kind of king we serve. That's the kind of king that we serve. More glory in one nail of the cross than in all the scepters of all kings. John 19, 28, we get towards the end of the chapter. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. If you want to read a, a description of the pain that Jesus suffered on the cross, go and read Psalm 22, which was a prophetic psalm written by David. It starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus forsaken on the cross on our behalf. And he writes about how his, his bones are out of joint and, 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 and what he suffers, what he experiences in that time. In Psalm 22, verse, I think it's 5. Let me go there real quick. Psalm 22. He says, I am poured out like water, verse 14. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted 
within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. I thirst. He's thirsty. Medical science tells us that in the flogging that Jesus got from Pilate, uh, when he was beat 39 times with basically a leather strap with pieces of metal in it, it, it was known, 39 lashes was known as one from death. And what it would eventually, uh, uh, what it would do is that it would put your system in a state of shock. Hypovolemic shock is what it's called, and we've got a doctor here, so you can correct me after if I'm wrong. But, but it, it puts your, your body in, in a state of shock, and through the blood loss, your, your heart starts beating faster trying to circulate blood that you just don't have. And so your heart and, and the sac around your heart and lungs actually begins to fill up with fluid. And the fluid builds up and you begin to experience intense thirst. Jesus is on the cross. When Jesus met with a woman at the well, he said that the reason why she was caught up in all these relationships, the reason why she was running after the things of the world is because she was thirsty. And on the cross, Jesus took our thirst upon himself. He dealt with our sin. In Romans 5.19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And that's the glory of God. That's why the God that we serve is not like any kind of God that we could think of. That's the omnipotence of God. That he would humble himself and, and suffer that kind of a, of a death for us. It's totally not human. It's inhuman for us to, to even think that somebody, the Bible says that scarcely for a good person we would die. We would hardly die for a good person. We would like, ah, is it worth it? <laughs> but Jesus died for sinners. John 19.33 says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. This is John again writing about himself. That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. So as they take the spear, they want to make sure Jesus is dead. It's the day of preparation. They can't leave the bodies up um, before the Sabbath. And so they want the guys to, to, to be able to, to die before the Sabbath happens, before 6 p.m. And so they break the legs of the other uh, uh, guys hanging on the cross besides Jesus, which will mean that they cannot hold themselves up and will suffocate in their position on the cross, which is what that cross was designed to do. And so they go to Jesus about to break his legs, but there is a scripture, there was a prophecy that his legs would not be broken. And so they come to him and they find him already dead. And just to be sure, they take a spear and they drive it into the ribcage, into the heart of Jesus. And as it pierces the heart of Jesus, it ruptures that sack of water and outpours blood and water. There's an incredible picture in this. When God created Adam 
and he wanted to create Eve. He put Adam in a deep sleep and then he removed a rib from his side with which he created Eve. There was a, a birthing of, 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 of woman through that. And in this moment, the spear that cracks through Jesus' ribs and into his heart, he produces his own bride. A bride for himself. When, when women give birth, it's also blood and water that, that flows. And this is the moment that we as the church were born. This is the moment that the church came into being, where the bride of Christ was born. Is the moment that the heart of Jesus was ruptured for us, for us. And so there's just so much redemption in all of this. If you have thoughts that you don't know how to deal with, if you have, have things that... that patterns of thinking and, and, and ways of, of believing that, that you struggle with, there was a crown of thorns that was pressed into Jesus' head on your behalf. But our hands, the things that, that, that we do, the things that, that we have done, that we cannot redeem, that we cannot atone for, males were driven through those hands. For our, our feet, the places that we have gone to, the things that we have seen. When, when Jesus walked on this earth, he went to where there was death and he went to where there was sickness and he went to where there was sinfulness and he went to where there was all kinds of oppression. And because Jesus went there, we don't have to go there. Because his feet were nailed to that cross. And then they took that spear and they ruptured his heart with it. Literally, the heart of God was broken for our hearts. So that our hearts could be healed. So that we could be a community of faith gathered around what Jesus has done for us. The blood and water flowed. And the Bible says that Jesus gave up his spirit and bowed his head. I mentioned this last week, but... When the disciples came to Jesus and they said, can we go where you're going? He, says, he said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And that same word for rest is the word we see here as he bowed his head. In other words, Jesus finally rests his head in our redemption. He's done the work he came to do and he declares it is finished. So what are the things that you are trying to do for yourself? What are the things that you're trying to redeem your own life from? What are the things that you're working very hard on setting up for yourself? The, what makes Christianity different from any other thing that you can try is the grace of God and what God has already done for you, the finished work of the cross. And when we see Jesus and we recognize him as the true king, the lion of Judah, who sacrificed himself for us. We're able to step into the fullness of everything that Christ has done for us. We're able to rest in that finished work. And so the Bible says we are now seated with him in heavenly places. Because we have entered into his rest. And that's the main movie. That is the, that's the premiere of of what the whole gospel hinges on. It's the most critical moment in all of history. It's the gospel. It's the sacrifice of Christ. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that includes your sin and my sin. There's nothing more valuable 
There's no greater news that you will ever hear in your entire life, no matter what happens, than the fact that Jesus died for your sin. Can we go ahead and thank Jesus for that today?